Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It's time for the third installment in our Vincent Minnelli Marathon. The Bad and the Beautiful from 1952. First, we want to remind you that our partner for this Minnelli Marathon is Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and then you have one month to watch it. So whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, you know each film is hand-selected by experts. You can also delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews over at Mubi's Notebook. Over at Mubi, the highlights include this week, Adam, La Soledad from 2016. This is the online premiere, actually, of one of the best films to ever come out of Venezuela, according to Mubi. Jorge Thielen Armand's La Soledad, a lucid rumination on the unforgiving effects of time, confirms with inspired poetic depth that the personal is always inescapably political. Mubi also has a new series of independent Chinese documentaries among its offerings. This includes Three Sisters from 2012. It's Wang Bing's patient, provocative, and deeply compassionate portrait of three provincial young sisters. Always interesting, provocative stuff available over at Mubi, and you can start your free trial just by going to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film spotting. And with that, let's go ahead and get to Manelli, the bad and the beautiful. No singing, no dancing this week, but we do get Kirk Douglas. I hadn't flown out. I thought it'd make you happy. I gather I failed. Well, you were pretty sure of yourself. Pretty sure I'd stay. Yes, I was. I know the legend. Jonathan Shields. The man who'll do anything to get what he wants. Well, I'm flattered you want me and bitter you've got me. Where do I start? Douglas there with Dick Powell in the Vincent Minnelli film that was written by Charles Schnee, adapted from a magazine story by George Bradshaw. Douglas plays an upstart and very ambitious and ruthless Hollywood movie producer who along the way befriends three colleagues and then ultimately alienates them. Those colleagues include Lana Turner, who he turns into a movie star, Dick Powell, who you heard there in that scene as a novelist and professor living down in the South, who is turned into a Hollywood screenwriter by Douglas's Jonathan Shields, and then Barry Sullivan, who plays Fred Emil. Emil and Shields collaborate on a few of their 
first productions together in Hollywood before going their separate ways. And we see these three collaborators all come together early in the film. Jonathan, at this point, is just a voice on the other end of a phone. His producing partner, Harry Pebble, is doing the talking for him, doing the relaying for him of a message trying to bring these three back into the fold. And we, over the course of this film, get told in three separate stories the entire process of their relationship and their ultimate falling out. Now, Josh, we don't have Michael Phillips here every week to school us, but thankfully, we do seem to have one constant guiding us through this marathon, and that's a listener, Nathaniel, in South Bend, Indiana. He has provided some commentary each one of our previous dialogues. We began with Manelli's Cabin in the Sky and then Meet Me in St. Louis, talked about here last week on the show. And he's got some more comments and some more thoughts to get our conversation going. Hey, Adam and Josh, Nathaniel here, your friendly neighborhood Manelli marathoner. So going into this week's film, I found myself trying to see where we might discern Minnelli's hand outside the trappings of the musical. And one place I thought I saw his touch was in the continued use of high-angle crane shots, like those we saw in the final scenes of Cabin in the Sky, and in the scene you both spoke about last week, when Judy Garland's Esther and Tom Drake's John Truitt slowly dimmed the lights of the house in Meet Me in St. Louis. In The Bad and the Beautiful, there are moments where this camera move is used to similarly rousing purpose, but it was telling to me of this movie that it was also put to much darker use, as when it looks down the hillside on the recently deceased body of James Lee Bartlow's Southern Belle wife, lying in the foreground, while in the background, much further down the hill, stands Kirk Douglas's Jonathan Shields, looking up at the life he's basically just taken through his own schemes and machinations. This much darker sensibility was surprising throughout for me. It seemed much more appropriate to, say, Billy Wilder than Vincent Minnelli. Which leads me to wonder from you guys whether you think the movie is ultimately as cynical as all that. Without giving too much away, does the ending suggest that all can and should be forgiven for the sake of creating movies? Does the film then serve as some kind of justification for Hollywood's worst tendencies? Or does the film's ending double down on its critique? Why should we empathize with any of them when they are all clearly willing to throw themselves into the fire to sacrifice their dignity at the hands of filmmaking? Anyway, thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on our non-musical Minnelli this week. See ya. So my thanks again to Nathaniel doing the heavy lifting for me. And with such eloquence and intelligence, Josh, it's almost like we're Jonathan Shields pulling from Nathaniel. His most inspired work. What do you think? Let's just hope we don't alienate him. I think we're going to need him through yeah, the rest of this marathon. We will indeed. Once again, Nathaniel also having a similar take to me on the movie we're discussing, including thinking about the comparison to Billy Wilder, because watching Kirk Douglas in this movie and watching him be so tortured at times, but also ruthless and relentless in the pursuit of his goal— I was immediately taken back to Ace in the Hole, one of my favorite Billy Wilder films that actually came out one year earlier. And I think it's the the better overall Douglas performance. It's really a showcase for him. I would have assumed this was a prelude to Ace in the Hole, not the other way around. But the films are similar in subject matter. Ace is not about Hollywood, but it is about celebrity and it's about the media and it is much darker and much more cynical, as Nathaniel suggested. So what do you make of his questions? Does the end of the film basically tell us that everything should be water under the bridge if it means creating movies together, maybe even great art together? Is this a critique of Hollywood and its process? And did you empathize with any of these characters? Well, first off, he's dead on by citing Wilder. What came to mind for me 
you know, obviously Ace in the Hole is Sunset a great Boulevard. place to, well, and for me, it was Fran Kubelek in The Apartment, huh. Shirley MacLaine. I just saw so much of her in Lana Turner's Georgia Lorison and the acknowledgement of depression that is made there and how drinking comes into play. That was really stark. And there was a bitterness to me that was surprising from what I expected I was going right. to get in this movie. I thought I would get more of that love letter to Hollywood. But I think that's where we end up. I, I would say my answer to the question Nathaniel posed is that this is this is a movie that does count the costs and is true about those costs and portrays them well, but ultimately says the price was worth it. Yeah. And we can do with that what we may. There is so much stellar Hollywood stuff in here that it convinced me <laughs> that it was all worth it, and maybe I'm the worst person for that, but little things like a Gloria Graham turn to come back around right. and give a kiss. Yeah. How about that moment? Th- that moment that alone. That choreography I mean, there. It is almost a dance moment. Where unbelievable. A husband and wife, and she goes in for a kiss, or he wants a kiss, he and wants she backs away, but then she turns and comes Does back. Does a spin and gets the kiss on her terms. Mm-hmm. That's just Hollywood gold. And the way, I think the movie tips its hand the way it opens, which Absolutely. is a kiss between two cameras. There's no other way to put it. From our point of view, we're on this crane shot that swoops in to a woman. I think she's laying on a couch, sprawled on a couch. And at the same time, yeah, we're on a movie set. At the same time, we see an actual physical crane with a camera on it moving in. So these two cameras come together and that's where the movie ultimately ends up is still in love with Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a better film for recognizing not only those truths I mentioned about alcoholism and depression. I think it was a stark reveal. We can talk a little bit about how this nods to the fact that prostitution, implicit and explicit, was part of the Hollywood game here. And uh, those little dark sides that we see. I thought a lot about Karina Longworth's recent Dead Blondes oh, yeah. podcast. Especially while because of Gloria Graham. Because of Gloria Graham, Turner as well. Infused everything with some tragedy that wasn't there the first time I saw The Bad and the Beautiful. Exactly. Although you see that maybe it's because... We missed it because it is here. And I think the movie gives it that space. But it's in retrospect, after listening to You Must Remember This, where you see how much attention it really is paying to that darkness. And and as I said, it's a far richer film for it. So Nathaniel and you both get at the conundrum of the bad and the beautiful. And at the risk of restating everything you just said, what does make this movie so fascinating, but also so frustrating, is that it is cynical and that it portrays Success, success in Hollywood anyway, as coming with a cost, as you said. Besides this fractured set of relationships we're introduced to right at the beginning and their disdain for their former partner, only Fred, the director, we are told, has a wife and kids. We get some inkling that he might have found some kind of joy outside of the joy he must have or the movie wants us to assume he has in being a successful director, which we're told that's what he is. Everyone else, including Jonathan, by omission, anyway, we have to imagine exactly the opposite of. They're happy professionally, but unhappy personally. We have reason to believe that they are alone, or at least so focused on their professional success that they're ignoring their personal happiness. And yet, with that tidy ending, almost comical ending, I'd say, that closing shot, it does singe that cynicism, and it suggests that the power of storytelling and the magic of movies will probably win out, and 
we as audiences, we as artists, the artists we're seeing on screen are always going to be drawn to it. And more than that, should be drawn to it. So this is this is the paradox at the heart of this movie and also at the heart really of almost any movie that's about the movies and about Hollywood. That's honest about yeah, it. Absolutely. Yes, the struggle is filled with lots of suffering and awfulness, but it's worth it. These movies do seem to say Hollywood ultimately always has to reinforce the myth of Hollywood. And I'm going back a little bit to a class I taught a few summers ago at the Graham School at the University of Chicago. It was about movies, about movies. And this course, I don't believe was on the syllabus, though I watched it in preparation for it and read some stuff about it at the time. One of the texts I used in the class was called Hollywood Reflected Movies About the Movies, written by Christopher Ames. And he has a quote in there that always stuck with me. And I think I've even referenced it on the show before. He said that every Hollywood movie is ultimately about Hollywood. Even if the movie itself, the subjects and the characters are not related in any way to Hollywood, it's always about in some way reinforcing the myth of Hollywood. And it's about feeding that to the audience so that they see themselves in these types of films anyway, specifically, they see themselves in the struggling actress. They see themselves in the struggling director. They'll keep perpetuating that myth. They'll keep buying the tickets and they'll buy the magazines and everything else that keeps that machine turning. So Minnelli, because of his own drive as an obsessive artist and his love of the Hollywood process, he can show those consequences. He can show the costs, but at the end of it, he does have to reinforce it. Yeah, it's a it's a feedback loop, essentially. And and that's how the bad and the beautiful does operate. But getting to Manelli, I mean, think about the context here for him that I think is just fascinating. First of all, a little shared background on the the Georgia and Jonathan Shields characters. They also both are second generation yes. Hollywood players. And they both have that, yeah. similar relationships to their fathers in this case. Shields was essentially, he was not given any connections by his father when he died or any money, really. He was forced to start on his own. And Georgia Lorison, we get the impression he had no time for her when he was alive. And so part of her depression and alcoholism is the experience of living under that shadow. Mm-hmm. They're trying, trying to, to decide back at him, but also I, live up to their yes, image. Somehow. Yes. Like, do yeah. I want to even be in this business? And, and she does, but she's tortured about that shadow. And so again, put this in the context of Manelli at this point, he had already married and divorced Judy Garland, who he had directed previously. And they had had their own Hollywood princess. Liza Minnelli was born in 1946. So all of this may seem, you know, very glamorous and stuff of the glitterati, but for him, it was very personal, absolutely personal. Mm-hmm. And I think you can feel that in the film. You can feel that in the performances. I think what distinguishes this from being something that tries to gloss over all of that pain and hardship is the fact that we're left with the sense, at least I was, Each of those three people are making an individual choice there at the end, Mm -hmm. and they have fully taken into account what they've experienced. The scope of the relationship. The scope of the – and and it's not just this sort of, well, but Hollywood, and they dance off the screen. I mean – and I think we're also still left to wonder to a degree, you know, what their response ultimately is going to be. The the movie – Let's us sit with that and and let's us decide for ourselves as well. And that's another thing that I liked about it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Manelli and the personal aspect of this, because if we go back to our first discussion, Cabin in the Sky, Michael Phillips setting up Manelli in this marathon, he said that battle, that conflict between domestic life and between work life and work life seeming to always win out or preoccupy your time, it being your obsession, that is a constant conflict for Minnelli. And we certainly see it here, though 
watching the movie, I was struck by the fact that Minnelli is a director, obviously, and he makes the director character in the film probably the most forgettable. Yeah, I'd agree. Right? Yeah. And even that storyline, too, and we'll get into that a little bit. What's the line about directing, too, though, that it takes uh, great humility? Yes, exactly. The the European director tells (laughs) him, tells... Shields that at some point when he he tries to direct. That's it. And then that's the other part of it is Shields as a producer is so hands on as a director. And he does ultimately at one point become the director because of how aggressive he is. Why would Minnelli want to present to us this notion of Hollywood where the producer is this godlike figure that controls every little detail? I didn't really understand that. Maybe there's some history there and someone like Michael could fill us in at some point. But I do briefly want to go back to the opening scene because I agree completely, Josh, that that's a reflection of this joy and the movie's ultimate reinforcement of the process of making movies because it is this glorious crane shot and the music is so bouncy and playful. It's it's a jungle gym. It's a playland, basically. And we see the Fred character. We don't know him yet, but he's on that crane swooping around like a boy with his toy. And the way he swoops in close, like you said, it's almost approaching our camera, our point of view. And he gets to position the actress exactly how he wants. And he's just having so much fun. You see the joy in his face. And then we transition to Georgia and we meet her the phone call from Shields to Georgia and it does start on a mirror lots of reflections in this movie and actually that's not that uncommon for movies that are about movies they are reflections of Hollywood the camera pans across three different versions of Lana Turner before it settles on which one is the right one going from one reflection to then her body in the foreground her face in the reflection in the background and then it finally settles on the quote-unquote real Lana Turner and then the camera It's not a crane, clearly, or at least I don't imagine it is in this more confined space. But when she stands up, the camera moves up with her. And then when she sits down, the camera swoops down with her. It's almost like he's saying there in that moment, you were just watching this set, this pretend set where the camera swoops around. And now we're in the movie world and the same actions are happening. Mm -hmm. It's all just this fake fun process. Then today I was rewatching this opening scene. And I guess I was doing my best sort of Antonioni blow up moment where I was just kind of rewinding and rewinding and paying attention to how Minnelli chooses to make those transitions and some of the shot choices within them. And each transition is a dissolve. Okay, but there's a little gag hidden in there, too. I swear, I wish I could bring it up for you and show it to you. But Emil is seated on that crane. He has the phone exchange, the actress in front, and then he and his assistants on the phone next to him. The assistants on the phone on our right, we see Emil seated on the crane on our left. The camera stays completely still as Fred pulls back, straight back on the crane. He recedes away from the frame into the darkness of the set, getting smaller and smaller as he gets further away from us. It then dissolves to George's bungalow. The maid enters the frame. And she answers the telephone. The phone is dead center. Behind the maid, to her right, our left, on screen, exactly where Minnelli just dissolved away from Fred. And I'm telling you exactly where. There's a director's chair. He's literally in the dissolve, seated squarely in a director's chair in George's bungalow. Like, there's no way that's an accident. Of all the choices you could make, of all the chairs you could put in that room, he puts clearly a director's chair. So Minnelli, being this visual 
stylist that he is, has found a way to link those sequences with the phone call and with the dissolves, but also with that touch, with that director actually sitting in a director's chair in another space. We're going to get to one of the all-time great dissolves, I think, later this week when we talk about Miller's Crossing. But yeah, so much wonderful technique here. And some other examples I noticed of just Minnelli's use of the camera. How about the early party scene where they go to this Hollywood party and we're gliding through the people talking from one conversation to the next. We pick up snippets Mm -hmm. as we move along. There's a woman who's seated and singing to the side and she carries through the entire Scene And it just struck me, you know, Robert Altman is I was just always say it, given yeah. credit almost for inventing this. And here it is right, right. here. This Overlapping a, dialogue, inconsequential dialogue, yes, but it's there. It's there. And it's just building into this uh, idea of the ambiance of the room, putting us in the middle of the party. And how about that sequence? I forget which movie within a movie moment it is, but we are on the faces of the crew and we pan and lift from one to the next yes, and eventually and then it, end in the, the spotlight. Yeah, I, and the, the Coen brothers to another light. totally ripped that off sure. for Hail Caesar. Right. And, and much of this film actually reminded me of some of the stuff they did in Hail Caesar. And you mentioned the ending. I just think that's such a beautiful touch where the phone is in the spotlight mm-hmm. and all three of the main players, one at a time, they want to hear shields on the other line. So they lean into the receiver and lean into the light. And yeah, that's another one of these instances where Manelli brings that visual touch mm-hmm. that we can connect beyond the thematic things that we've seen in his other films. I mean, Meet Me in St. Louis, as you're talking, has that professional personal challenge too, you know, when the father's forced to move mm-hmm. the whole family to take the job in New York. Right. And that sequence you mentioned, the movie in a movie moment, is the one where we are finally seeing Georgia. I think it's her final scene, the big emotional scene with her husband in the movie is dying and she gets her big payoff moment at the end of the shoot. And we know it's working because we can watch and see that Lana Turner as the actress is performing very capably, but also then the camera does go to each of these faces watching on the set and their smiling faces as he goes along that that panoply. That is, for me, the single biggest reinforcement of yeah, the confirmation. That, that, that confirmation exactly in the entire film. Now, like Meet Me in St. Louis, not only does this film ultimately succeed because of those Minnelli touches, but what's best here is the leading lady. Just like Judy Garland I'd last agree. week, I think that Lana Turner here, even better than Kirk Douglas, and I love yeah. Kirk Douglas, she is wonderful, and without that middle sequence, without her... I think you can make a case this would be a really mediocre movie. I'd agree. She gets more focus. It's better because there's more there. And maybe that's simply because Lana Turner, she has top billing. She's the star. Maybe they were trying to showcase her more. Maybe it's because of the romance angle. And if you look at the movie poster, it's Kirk Douglas with Lana Turner leaning back into his arms and they're about to kiss. So they're really. It's a romance novel. It's a romance novel, exactly. And that's really what they're selling. And maybe that was the point. It's easier to sell, so they gave it more attention. Maybe it's what Minnelli and/or Schnee is the screenwriter found the most compelling. Whatever it is, it's definitely the best. I mentioned that the blandest character here. And I think the performance by Sullivan as Fred Emile is fine, but I was never too invested in his union with Shields or it's dissolved. It's not something that really tore me up too much. Similarly, you've got Dick Powell as James Lee Bartlow, the Southern writer turned screenwriter. And I was more invested. I like Powell. I like some of the, the idiosyncrasies he gives him as a character. But you know this movie is truly a good reflection of Hollywood when the writer gets short shrift. <laughs> 
<laughs> because he's got the most melodrama, but the revelation regarding what happens to his wife and then the revelation later of Jonathan's complicity is really clumsily handled, I think, and not effective at all. Yeah, I'd agree. And we should note Gloria Graham is his wife. His wife. We referred to her exactly. earlier. So that's the relationship there. Yeah. And I just never really bought what I think the movie wants to sell me, which is, I'm curious your response to this, that Jonathan used them and he got what he wanted because he's a selfish snake, but also because somehow he recognized that his hurting them would also somehow serve them. So we're talking about cynicism. Of course, he didn't want what happened to James Lee Bartlow's wife to happen. But damn it, if she ran off with another man and their marriage dissolved completely, that would have been fine to him. Because in his mind, Bartlow needed to be free of his wife to truly realize his full potential. And then at the end of the film, we see that he's exploited her memory. The writer has exploited her memory to write a book that has won a Pulitzer Prize. That is very cynical to me, and yet I don't think the filmmakers necessarily want us to see it as exploitation. They want us to see it as somehow a loving, touching yeah, tribute to his wife. But with Turner, their connection, you touch on it. They're legacy children of Hollywood. They have daddy issues. They're misfits with chips on their shoulders. And so his recognition that by loving her and giving her the affection she craves is what would transform her, would give her the confidence to transform her into a movie star, it's almost like he's willing to sacrifice himself. And so I think that's a question the film poses, or at least one I'm left considering, is why does he ultimately fracture their relationship? Is it because he's a flawed, self-destructive person, and he has a little bit of a monologue that would suggest as much where we get a grand Kirk Douglas exclamation that I don't think is as effective as Lana Turner's big <laughs> blowout moment that comes a little bit later in the film. But was it that or was it completely calculated, Josh? Was it a case where he knew he won't always be there for her? She needs to move on to realize her full potential. And so he'll give her the reason to move on. He will make her hate him. I think the movie wants to have it both ways a little bit. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Stop looking like that. Remember, I didn't ask you here. You couldn't stay where you belong, could you? You couldn't enjoy what I made possible for you, no. You'd rather have this. Well, congratulations. You've got it. All laid out for you so you can wallow in pity for yourself. The betrayed woman. The wounded doe with all the dribble that goes with it going through your mind right now. Oh, he doesn't love me at all. He was lying. All those lovely moments, those tender words. He's lying. He's cheap and cruel. That low woman, Lila. Well, maybe I like Lilas. Maybe I like to be cheap once in a while. Maybe everybody does. Or don't you remember? Get that look off your face. Who gave you the right to dig into me and turn me inside out and decide what I'm like? How do you know how I feel about you? How deep it goes? Maybe I don't want anybody to own me, you or anybody. Get out! Get out! I think, well, first of all, he goes full Kirk in that scene. And wherever you land on Kirk Douglas going full Kirk, some people love it. I think it's a little much for this movie, as melodramatic as this movie is. it's a li- The calibration goes off when he goes that big. So I'd agree for that reason, the scene doesn't quite work. I always read their relationship as one Shields saw as utilitarian all the way through. I don't think that he was completely intentionally deceiving her by playing up their romance. I'm sure he did believe that there was that 
level of intimacy to their relationship. But there's an exchange during another onset sequence where it's a wedding scene in the movie within the movie. And he doesn't quite get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And she's not bothered by it. It's the end of the day. She comes up to them, is more concerned about where they're going to eat or something like that that night. And she just kind of beams at him because she is legitimately fully in Smitten. love. And his response is, that's the look I want in that wedding scene. Can you give me that? Right. So for him, and this goes back to the Menali personal professional dichotomy, professional is always going it's to always come first. It's always about work first. It's yeah. always about work. So he's not- And how he can manipulate it to get the most. Exactly. So he's, and, and I think there's the manipulation comes in. That's how she could realize her potential as a star is to have the confidence she gets from his approval, not only as a producer, but as a lover. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's completely utilitarian for him. I- Think but what doesn't Douglas he fall in does love with her? Maybe Douglas I, gives I, us a sense degree, that he might have actually. He might, so he's to a degree, hurt by this, but not to the but point. He has to do it. Not to the point where he would ever sacrifice even one scene for their relationship. He would rather have that scene perfect than have them be in a good place together. Is True. the reading that? And and I think what Douglas does do well, and the movie overall does well, is allow us to be in that in between space where. We don't think he's a charming cad, but we also don't think he's a complete ruthless jerk. We see, we we admire his ambition and how he does earn this for himself. We can see how he has put these people in good professional mm-hmm. positions. Um, so yeah, it's it's not sort of a, a villain or hero performance at all. I think I think that's good. But you're right, Turner is you know way working at another level than he is. And maybe the scene that exemplifies that best is another one they share. This is early on when he's still trying to convince her that he wants to make her a star. And she has at this point, as we've discussed, this tortured relationship with her professional desires because of her father. So he sneaks into her apartment. She comes home from a night very, of... Very troubling sequence in many ways. It is, but I love how Georgia handles it. So yeah. she comes in drunk, probably from, we guess, a night of networking, something that she's, you know, and what does networking involve? I was just going to say, that's, right? that's a nice euphemism. That's, that's what the movie hints at mm-hmm. in, a, in a couple places. And so she's she's drunk, clearly unhappy, but man, does she look like Hollywood. She's got the sequin black glittering dress, comes in with the light on her, and he's sitting in the chair saying, I'm going to make you a star. She doesn't want any part of it. Oh, one day, bitch, you sure expect a lot of company. For the kind of company you're talking about, I don't have to trot over here at four in the morning. All I have to do is pick up a phone. Well, pick one up. I love how her response is to walk past him, slinks past him, goes to a dressing area and comes out in like the most everyday yeah, pair pajamas. of pajamas you could and just says, leave me alone. I want to get some sleep. So with a costume change, she completely punctures the Hollywood myth. And I think that there are many instances where the bad and the beautiful, as sumptuous as it is, allows that to happen too. And just to also add to this idea of um, what the women are going through in this movie that maybe Karina Longworth's podcast enabled me to see a little Mm -hmm. bit better. There is a two-scene character here, and I think she's played by Lucy Nock. Uh, I'm looking in the credits, and it's hard to tell because it's a very small girlfriend of the star Gaucho. Well, is she the girlfriend or the impression I got is this is when Shields is trying to recruit Gaucho to star in their low budget picture. Oh, she was Anne? 
I don't remember her name. Yeah, and Anne she's Grevy not named or whatever was the woman's name. Okay, she's not named in the IMDb credits. At least I just made a quick glance. You thought maybe she was the one who was going to come in to replace Georgia when she didn't show up the no, first she, day. No, no, th- this is someone different. Okay. Basically, she, my impression was she was hired for the night to entertain Gaucho, uh-huh. whatever that meant. They dan- We see them first dancing together. Okay. Then they go back to Shield's apartment, I believe. Mm. She's still there with Gaucho. I felt Gaucho, like they were different, but you might be on something. He, and she, she gets two or three scenes. And after listening to You Must Remember This, I just thought, man, that woman's got a story. Mm-hmm. That And that woman's got a whole long story. She is, she is another Georgia, and we're just not seeing it because she's not the star. Mm-hmm. And I, it's another instance of the bad and the beautiful, like giving us a glimpse of that underbelly, not not to the complete detriment of the myth it wants to sell, right. but at least allowing the underbelly to exist alongside. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think you're right. Maybe it's because we've listened to some of those shows and we have a little bit of insight to it. But I don't think the movie wants us to forget her. It gives us two really interesting, important scenes with her where we really are considering this from her perspective, not just seeing her as a potential villain to Georgia. At least that's not how I see it. I think her. I'm thinking of a different Oh, okay. I'm thinking of actress, the actress yeah. who is with Gaucho at the end of their shoot and then is the one with Jonathan Shields oh, at the no, end of the Oh, no, you're shoot. thinking of Lila, played by Elaine right. Stewart. Yes. Who, yes, yes. She, I should yeah. have known immediately who you're thinking of. I do know who you're thinking of, though. She barely has any lines, but she's she's there. Yeah, Lucy Knock, I think, is who I'm thinking of, and you're right. She's, she's almost... I would say she's there to be arm candy mm-hmm. for Gaucho that entire evening, whatever you think that might mean. Now, in talking about Turner, I thought you might reference the scene in the car after she leaves Jonathan's house. We've seen the encounter with Lila there, and it's bizarre. Nathaniel, actually, in his voicemail, it's a part we left out. He talked about it, and he says he wanted us to try to make sense of it because it's wildly performative, almost surreal moment. When Lana Turner flees from Kirk Douglas in her car and she nearly crashes, it's just bizarre enough that I almost wonder if it holds a key to the rest of the film. Now, I don't know what that key would be or what it is, but that is a bizarre, I think, wonderful, expressionistic scene that is full of her expression of sadness, desperation. It's basically a primal scream. Everything that has been building in her and that she thought she was finally past through this relationship with Jonathan, this realization of all her hopes and dreams, now it's basically been dashed. No matter what professional success she'll have, this thing she thought she needed and that she craved, she is now going to be without. And she lets it all out in that scene. And it is, I keep saying bizarre, it's weird because the steering wheel's kind of all over the place and it looks like it's obviously on a set, but it's pouring down rain and you just almost get the sense that she's going to crash into 37 other cars, but then she just comes to a halt. But it's a real breakdown scene, and it is one of those moments that is, in terms of modulation, way at a higher level than any of the other scenes with Lana Turner. But unlike that one with Douglas, I believed every note of it. Yeah, I think we do that because if this is a portrait of someone suffering from manic depression to a degree, we've seen the depression, and and this is maybe a heightened envisioning of the mania that uh, she might be suffering from as well. So I didn't find that it was, though it was out of step visually in a way, it was almost like a Hitchcockian car yeah. sequence, right? Makes <laughs> and, you think of Psycho a little yeah, bit in the car. Yeah, yeah. So, so that does stand apart, but but tonally in terms of the characterization we've been getting of Georgia, I think it does fit. Now, I did want to close with one thought. Looking at the plot description today on Wikipedia, it said that 
it was based on the magazine story by Bradshaw called Of Good and Evil. And, quote, it concerned the will and testament of a New York theater producer who tried to explain his bad behavior to the three people he had hurt, a writer, actor and director. So based on real life events, a real life Jonathan Shields essentially trying to make amends. And that's exactly what we do get in this movie. We get a bad person justifying himself and his actions. And I used the word sacrifice earlier, almost as if maybe he was sacrificing himself and a chance at being truly in love with someone for her greater good. And we can discuss and debate whether or not that's really what's going on. But there is this sense then by the end of the movie that we're supposed to recognize how they all have very legitimate grievances against him. And we wouldn't want to be associated with him anymore either. But the movie is ultimately saying, well, you should really all be more grateful. And there's something about that that I think maybe just on some level I recoil from a little bit. But even more than that, just in movie terms and story terms, I wish that we saw the characters and then by extension us as viewers. I wish that we saw them come to the realization that maybe they've been a little bit too hard on him. Maybe they didn't fully see the big picture and how much he did in retrospect help them. I wish we came to that conclusion along with them, as opposed to it being a case where we have Harry Pebble, the guy sitting across the desk, outlining it for us. Well, like, he just completely lays it out in a way that then I don't see those characters ever really wrestle with that recognition until where, maybe the very that's end. That's where the final yeah. shot is so brilliant. And that, because it's just too tidy for me. Harry end. Pebbles is giving the he's giving the sales pitch. You know, that's what he's there for. I know. And I think it's distinctive that Shields does not appear well, again. I like that part. I'm not saying he leaves, should appear. It ultimately I'm saying they leaves, should have a realization well, themselves. Well, I think... I think that's what they're having. That's what we're actually seeing. And the movie is better for leaving it up in the air because then we can decide. We can say, hey, Georgia, <laughs> you know, like you don't want any part of him. And we can take that side. Mm-hmm. Or we can say, listen, you know, he wouldn't have been good for you anyway. And things turned out better. And we can make that decision with each of them. I don't think Pebble needed they, to spell it out, though. Well, no, Articulate but it word for word, line by line I with think each that was, character. I mean, I think that was, again, his part as the character he is playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that final shot redeemed it for me. Okay. One final thought, Josh. Here's how naive I am and how much of a wishful thinker I am. And I don't think we've really spoiled the movie too much. But somehow if you're listening and you don't want some plot details, I guess here at the very end of the conversation, you should fast forward. I wanted to believe so badly that Gloria Graham had nothing but the utmost love and devotion for her husband and that they were the perfect couple, (laughs) that it didn't actually really click for me until about six to eight hours after the movie that she was going to Acapulco with Gaucho. That's called denial, Adam. Yeah, because she was sleeping with him. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to believe that. I wanted to believe somehow that, yes, they were on their way to Acapulco in that plane, but it was just because he was trying to entertain her and she wanted to go. But there was no hanky panky there. I mean, come on. I mean, she loves her husband. There there would be nothing untoward going on. I believed that for a good six to eight hours after this movie before it actually sunk in. So, you, yeah, you were in denial a little bit. But I'll also say that I don't think it's a a well-drawn part for Graham. I mean, no. everything that works works because of her performance, but Rosemary is depicted pretty much from the start as a pretty distraction. And so yes. when you see the movie looking but at her that way... I believe they love each other and... Yeah, but she, you know, immediately she's so taken with everything in Hollywood. She wants to get there and it's it's a pretty thinly written role that kind of sets up for that sort yeah. of move for her. I don't disagree. I don't, but I also maybe give it a little bit more credit just because I see her as such a good opposite to him. 
he's so withdrawn and it was that, so it was that kiss adam yeah, when she did that was. spin maybe she just was. spun your head I around too that relationship and i don't accept <laughs> i don't accept that she was cheating on her husband josh the bad and the beautiful is available to rent or stream on most platforms if you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net we are not done with manelli yet our marathon continues next week with a return to the musical form 1953's the bandwagon that stars fred astaire and sid sharice later this week i mentioned it earlier we are going to do a sacred cow review of the coen brothers miller's crossing that's on our full show that'll be out friday of course Film Spotting Madness continues to best of the 90s. It's round two results and third round matchups. Our thanks as always to Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, at least for a couple more weeks, is Jeremy Wellhausen. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.